Illusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Listen to amazing and bizarre science infuse into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, we'll feature smart sand, video glasses and the electric universe. But first up, here's the news with Larissa Savas and Julianne Popple. The idea of placing a small model of an object into a box of sand into which you reach only seconds later to pull out a life-size replica may sound crazy, I know. However, researchers at the Distributed Robotics Laboratory at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology's Computer Science and Artificial Intelligence Lab have devised algorithms that could enable such an innovation. So far, developments have been crude with the algorithms only tested on pebbles, or cubes of approximately one centimetre to an edge, with rudimentary microprocessors inside, and electro-permanent magnets on four sides, which can be magnetised or demagnetised with a single electric pulse. Shape information would be conveyed to the heap of smart sand via the simple physical model, and a subtractive approach akin to, say, the block of stone from which a sculptor starts carving would be used. The individual grains would communicate back and forth with one another and selectively connect to each other to form a three-dimensional object, with any grains not required to construct that object falling away. When the object was no longer of use, it would simply be recycled into the heap from which it came and decomposed into its constituent grains, able to form a brand new object. Of course, actual smart sand would require grains much smaller than one centimetre cubes. However, Robert Wood, director of Harvard University's Microrobotics Laboratory, believes that this is an obstacle that can be overcome. Take the core functionalities of their pebble, says Wood. They have the ability to latch on to their neighbours. They have the ability to talk to their neighbours. They have the ability to do some computation. Those are all the things that are certainly feasible to think about doing in smaller packages. So what do you think they might use it for? Well, wouldn't it be great to one day be able to come home and say, if you need something, like, you can't reach anything, you could just, like, make a little replica of, like, a ladder and then you could pull it out and there you'd have a ladder that you could use to, like, change a light bulb or reach something that you couldn't reach. As the most common cancer amongst Australian women, one in nine will be diagnosed with breast cancer before the age of 85. And, of course, the earlier that a cancer is detected the better the prognosis for treatment and long-term survival. However, diagnostic technology is currently limited to mammography, which is not only costly and uncomfortable, but often only effective at diagnosing advanced stage breast cancer. With this in mind, wouldn't it be handy then to be able to accurately detect and diagnose breast cancer at the earliest possible stage in a simple, portable, relatively painless and cost-effective way? Well, a team of scientists in the Department of Biomedical Engineering at McGill University's Faculty of Medicine in Canada are on the way to making this a reality. 
the team has developed a novel microfluidics-based microarray that makes it possible to measure as many protein biomarkers as desired, whilst minimising the possibility of obtaining false results. Previously, researchers had toiled to create blood tests for cancer based on identifying the presence of a protein biomarker, the carcinoembryonic antigen. However, this biomarker is not only found in those with cancer, but also in healthy individuals, with its concentration varying from one person to the next, depending on one's lifestyle and genetic background. Hence, it has been impossible to determine a precise cutoff between healthy people and those with cancer. The biomedical engineering team, in conjunction with oncology and bioinformatics groups from McGill's Goodman Cancer Research Centre, measured the profile of 32 proteins in the blood of 11 healthy controls and 17 individuals who had the oestrogen receptor positive subtype of breast cancer, where oestrogen receptors are overexpressed. The researchers discovered that a subset of six of the 32 proteins could be used to establish a fingerprint for this particular cancer and successfully classify each patient and each healthy control as positive or negative for breast cancer. Despite this study requiring repetition with extra markers and using a greater diversity of patients and cancer subsets prior to the application of this blood test to clinical diagnosis, these early results are promising, with the researchers working on a more sensitive handheld version of the test that could potentially revolutionise the way we detect breast cancer and other diseases. Last Wednesday evening I had the absolute privilege to attend a rather interesting forum held by the Royal Society of New South Wales. It was chaired by Robin Williams from ABC Radio and also ABC's Mark Scott and the University of Sydney's Jill Truella, who together generated a rather lively debate and discussion on the issue of science and the media today. There are a number of key issues discussed. First and foremost, the fact that the current media landscape is ever-changing. The variety of different forms of media, podcasts, downloads available on the internet, TV, radio, available on demand. And the significance of this, which is that a person with a particular view is able to seek out programs and content that reinforces that particular view. Fewer and fewer places where people willingly go to get a balanced view on certain issues in the world, whether it be science or anything else. Mark Scott argued that this was one of the critical roles that the ABC was still fulfilling in Australia, was to be a sort of balanced marketplace or forum where a variety of views could be communicated in a balanced way. Another um, issue that was dealt with was the disconnect that sometimes occurs between what's accepted as a scientific a point of scientific consensus within the science community and what's actually perceived within the general public. And the key example of this was climate change and how, as Jill Truella described, climate change had become an issue of belief rather than a proper analysis of the facts and the evidence. One of the things that makes this difficult is climate change is such a complex issue and even scientists, some scientists themselves, myself included, struggle to understand all of the evidence. So it's very difficult to communicate this to the general public. The key question of the evening was, how do we bridge the disconnect between scientific consensus 
and the public's understanding of the science? This is a question that was brought up repeatedly during the evening, but no answer was offered. One thing's for sure, if scientists want to influence public policy and really make a difference, they need to find an answer to that problem soon. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio. Send email to diffusion at 2SCR.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network, into Sydney on 2SCR 107.3, and over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com and www.2SCR.com. Wearable computers and video glasses are a reality at last. Science fiction writers Charlie Stross and Verna Vinci were right. Wearable computing in the form of computer-enabled glasses, are the coming big new thing. For several decades, people have worked on the idea of augmented reality, of overlaying information on top of your everyday vision. At present, you can get augmented reality apps for your iPhone and Android mobile phones, which are used by pointing your phone's camera at the world around you and seeing on the phone's screen pop-up information about the places and things you're looking at. One of the world pioneers in the field is Professor Steve Mann at the University of Toronto. His latest prototype is called the iTap and gives him a heads-up display of his computer, which is always connected to the internet. He can share his vision and sound and call up any information he needs on his designer glasses, with the display being painted on his eyeballs. He's looking for commercial partners for the first time in 30 years. But so far, he's still looking. You can buy video recording spy sunglasses online from cheap low-resolution pairs that record for less than an hour to more expensive high-definition pairs that look like prescription glasses. Unfortunately, almost all of them come from Chinese companies that have no service or warranties or rechargeable battery replacement. So once they break or the battery wears out, you have to buy a new one. There are a few American companies selling video recording sunglasses at around the $300 and upwards mark. For augmented reality projection onto a heads-up display in your glasses, you need to spend a few thousand. They usually have the camera hidden on the bridge of the glasses to capture your point of view. In 2011, Lady Gaga became a creative director at Polaroid by developing her own grey label range of video glasses. Her video glasses, as well as being very stylish sunglasses, had a video and still camera and LCD displays. So not only could you capture what was in front of you, but you can put together a video and photographic slideshow to show people who are looking at you. Polaroid hasn't put these on the market yet. In December 2012, Luxi released the first wearable video camera with a microphone that could connect to your mobile phone with Bluetooth. The Luxie device looks like a Bluetooth phone headset with a red light on the microphone end to tell you that it's also recording video. There's a problem that Bluetooth video streaming won't work on every phone. You need the absolute latest phones with Bluetooth 3 and above. The video resolution is 480 pixels height 480p 
which is just less than standard definition TV. Unfortunately, you can't use a Luxie to make a video phone call. But Luxie promised to release software that allows people to broadcast video live straight to the web sometime this year. Luxie is around two to three hundred dollars depending on where you shop and comes with accessories for attaching it to helmets and caps and all sorts of things. On the crowdfunding site Kickstarter, last year the Zionize company asked for funding to build and sell video recording and broadcasting glasses that could take prescription lenses and be used as everyday glasses or as sunglasses with user-changeable lenses in a standard size, so you could just go to your optometrist and ask for your prescription, if you need glasses. So you might actually be able to use them indoors as well as outdoors, as long as what you want a video is really brightly lit. Most of the cameras we're talking about need pretty bright lights. Zionize put their camera and microphone on the side of the glasses. Zionize raised over $300,000 more than the $50,000 that they asked for. Unfortunately, when the delivery date arrived in December 2012, Zionize failed to deliver. At present, people who pre-order the video glasses aren't really sure when they'll get their Zionize. There's rumours that summer 2012, which is around July in the US, I'm still waiting. Just this last week, Google has released a concept video for Project Glass. Project Glass appears to be video and audio recording and broadcasting glasses with a transparent heads-up display and either a mobile phone connection or a built-in phone. Project Glass is ahead of the others in that they suggest it will have a way for you to hear audio through the glasses. The concept video shows a man using the direction he gazes for controlling icons, voice control to control and voice control to access anything else he wants to do without ever having to reach for a phone or even look at a screen. The closing scene of the video shows him making a video phone call to a girl while he looks out over a sunset over the city and plays her a song on his ukulele. Project Glass came from Google's super secret Google X Labs and doesn't yet have a release date. Could be this year, could be next year, could be way in the future. It was reported that a pair of the glasses were spotted on Google founder Sergey Brin at a recent charity event. And this week, Virgin Labs are asking for funding on Kickstarter from anyone who doesn't feel burned by their Zionize experience. They promised to deliver their wearable computing sunglasses on December 12th, 2012. 12th of the 12th of the 12th. The Virgin Labs glasses have a new electronically dimmable shade function that allows you to dial up the darkness on your sunglasses. In their concept video, you can see that their prototype doesn't dial all the way down to clear, so it's of limited use indoors at the moment. Hopefully they can finesse that by the end of 2012. And while electronically dimmable glasses are a very clever idea, I'm not sure it's better than photograde lenses that automatically darken when it's bright and automatically become clear when you go indoors, which we already have. These glasses also have a high-definition video camera and microphone, and in this case they're hidden on the bridge above the wearer's nose instead of on the side, like the Zion eyes. The Virgin Labs team have amazing dreams of putting medical sensors and really cool stuff on future versions of the glasses, and have apps on your phone monitor the microphone and images to pop up useful information when you need it.
which means that the Virgin Labs people are actually looking at releasing an API, which means that programmers around the world could write their own software to work with these glasses, whereas all the other ones look like they might be closed and you can only use the software that comes with them. The first contact lenses with display pixels have been produced, but they're many years away from being commercially available. And at the moment, they only have a few pixels. Touchscreens seem positively Stone Age. Next up, Wallace Thornhill is a physicist and independent researcher living in Canberra with a new paradigm called the Electric Universe. He spoke to me in a very busy restaurant at Circular Quay after presenting a talk to the Sydney Futurist Meetup. The Electric Universe uh, was born out of an interdisciplinary approach to both ancient records of what was seen in the sky and uh, coming forward in time to uh, the work of several Nobel Prize winners in plasma physics and also the work of uh, Christian Berkelin, who was the first person to uh, do experiments which showed that the auroras uh, in the northern reaches of Norway were an electromagnetic phenomenon and he actually proposed that it was due to electric currents flowing from the sun. Uh, these uh, currents were later named after him, Birkeland currents, and they have been recognised since the space age as being responsible for the auroras. The electric universe goes much further than uh, merely cosmology though, because, because it's based broadly on all of human experience, it has a lot to say about mankind's origins. Things that were witnessed in the sky have a lot to teach us about uh, the actual physics and dynamics of uh, planetary systems, galaxies and so on. So, as I've said many times, cosmology to be considered to be uh, a real picture of our place in the universe can have no exceptions. doesn't matter what subject you talk about, it must have some overarching part of the picture to provide and this is what we've found with the electric universe to the extent that we're getting a lot of scientists and engineers now uh, joining in on our web discussions and attending our conferences. So the electric universe is mainly about the fact that the electric force, or the electromagnetic force is the most important one as opposed to the conventional theories which have gravity as the most important one. That's right. At present, the Big Bang Theory is one based on the gravitational theory, Einstein's theories of gravity. But Einstein never really actually explained the cause of gravity. He never said why matter or mass should curve space. He didn't actually address the issue of uh, whether space is a concept or something that can be curved. So there are all these basic issues which still go unanswered. Even the one of, of um, what exactly causes matter to have mass, and that has of course been uh, examined by the LHC experiment at great cost and my prediction has been for some years that uh, they will find no such particle because mass is a property of matter uh, and uh, in fact uh, a lot of the simple manifestations of the electric force are such things as magnetism and gravity and the nuclear force and one of the reasons I've called this paradigm the electric universe is that all you need is a single force, the electric force, to explain all others. So we go back to the main job of physics and that is to simplify things. Instead of looking for more and more particles and more and more forces to get your Nobel Prize, 
the idea of science originally was to simplify our picture of the universe, and that is something that we do. Could you briefly tell me about some of the predictions you've made that have since been confirmed? Yes, based on the electrical model of uh, the Sun and the solar system and the galaxy, we recognise that electric currents flow through space. And uh, comets uh, an electrical phenomenon. This was actually understood, or at least proposed, back in the, at the end of the 19th century, but was forgotten during the 20th. So on that basis, I predicted that when the Deep Impact mission was first announced, that when the copper projectile approached the nucleus, and the nu if the nucleus was discharging, that is showing jets at the time, that there would be an electrical flash before the actual impact. And this, to the surprise of everyone, was actually discovered. Another prediction I made was that the, uh, the night pole of Saturn that had been in darkness for 14 years because of the length of the year of Saturn would actually be hotter than its surroundings and that also was shown to be correct. I also predicted that beneath the clouds of Titan when the Huygens probe uh, finally pierced the clouds and landed on Titan's surface that the surface would have the same features as we find on the Earth and Mars and so on and it would not be an ocean of hydrocarbons that also was borne out. I feel that I was the only person on planet Earth to make these kind of predictions. The work on the electric universe began in earnest back in uh, 1994 when I teamed up with uh, researchers in America who were coming from the opposite direction looking at the symbolism that has come down to us from our, both our prehistoric ancestors and also the first civilizations. Our prehistoric ancestors and the uh, peoples of the first civilizations showed us, after using a forensic technique on what they were trying to tell us, that the ancient skies were quite different to what we witness today, and in fact that their stories of the uh, planetary gods hurling thunderbolts in the heavens and causing chaos on earth had an actual basis in fact. And this immediately, of course, called into question all of what we think we know about gravity and Newton's laws of dynamics. And uh, so over the years we've been able to piece together a new uh, physics, if you like, to be able to explain what the ancients were trying to tell us. And we've had verifications late in the piece from high energy experiments at Los Alamos and plasma labs and so on, which has confirmed what we initially thought back in the 1990s. And this was EMOND? Yes, I've coined the term EMOND for electrically modified Newtonian dynamics because at present the buzzword in um, uh, research into cosmology and the motions of galaxies is called modified Newtonian dynamics or MOND. I've modified that by adding the word electrical because one of the only ways I can make all of this new physics work is to have gravity itself, a, uh, an electrical force between all particles. It's a very weak force, of course, because we know gravity is extremely weak, but it's easily explained by looking at the structure of matter. What do you think the age of the universe is? The Big Bang Theory is in effect what I call a pseudo-religion because it was merely a replay of the Genesis creation from nothing. 
and since we don't understand the, the origin of matter, and in fact the principles of physics uh, deny that we can actually say anything about the creation of matter, then the Big Bang Theory begins from a miracle and is therefore not science. The, uh, the Electric Universe takes the detailed research of um, Dr. Halton Arp, who has shown that the redshift of objects is related to their age and not their distance. And that complete, uh, completes a completely different picture of the universe from the one we've been taught. It shows in, in Halton Arp's words that the universe is much smaller than we thought uh, and that the universe is of unknown extent and of unknown age. The Electric Universe uh, and Plasma Cosmology, which is the uh, work of uh, these Nobel Prize winners that I mentioned earlier, all come together in this new view of the universe. And where have you published your results? Where can we find that about? Uh, we have two websites. Mine is called uh, holoscience, H-O-L-O science.com. And my partners in the US is called thunderbolts.info with reference to the interplanetary thunderbolts. And uh, we do have peer-reviewed uh, papers, uh, interestingly enough, in the uh, IEEE journals and not in the astrophysics journals for good reason, because the cosmology of the future will be uh, built around electrical engineering principles and not um, uh, speculative metaphysics. Wallace Thornhill, thank you very much. Thank you. That was physicist Wallace Thornhill. You can find out more about the electric universe paradigm at holoscience.com. That's H-O-L-O, science.com. And his partner site, thunderbolts.info. His IEEE research papers are titled Plasma Generated Craters and Spherules. That's S-P-H-E-R-U-L-E-S. And the Z-Pinch Morphology of Supernova 1987A and Electric Stars. And that's all from us this time on Diffusion. Send email to diffusion at 2SER.com. That's diffusion at 2SER.com. And tell us your stories, thoughts and ideas. If you'd like to be on radio, we need more volunteers on Diffusion. If you live in Sydney, you can join us in the 2SER studios. Or if you're not, then perhaps you could record a story and send it to us. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. Contributing to the program were Larissa Savas and Julianne Popple. I produce Diffusion in the studios of 2SCR 107.3 in Sydney, and Diffusion is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio.